Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study again together, fellowship and, and experience the, the love that you would have us experience for each other. We pray that you will join us today, our minds will be drawn together in, in unity as we uh, glorify your name today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly Gospel in Galatians, and the title this week is From Slaves to Heirs. From Slaves to Heirs. And uh, somebody read for us the first paragraph. It uh, begins, Paul tells. Somebody read that for us. Paul tells the Galatians that they should not live and act as slaves, but as the sons and daughters of God, with all the rights and privileges thereof. (laughs) Their situation was similar to the story of a discouraged new convert who came to talk with Chinese Christian Watchman Nee. Okay, so we're going to pause right there for a second. And by the way, if you hear some noise next door, there's a police academy training going on there. Uh, they told me they're going to try to take it outside, but uh, when we got here, they were, they were doing you know, hand-to-hand combat. And, uh, and it can get really loud if they don't get it outside. So that's, if you hear some noise, that's what that is. Okay? Um, so we heard that in this first paragraph, it says, you know, sons and daughters of God with all the rights and privileges thereof. And I thought about that statement, and I wanted to ask you. I don't know, maybe there's something wrong with my thinking, but I was trying to think. Rights and privileges. I, I was trying to think, what rights? I thought of lots of privileges. But what rights? What right do we have? Uh, what, so so while, you, while you think of, of the rights, I'm going to list some privileges, and then I'm going to come back to you and say, and, and help me tell when we come to the daughter of God, what rights do we get? So... Because I couldn't think of any. So hopefully you can share those with me. Let's, let's think of some of the privileges we have as, as sons and daughters of God. She says, aren't they the same? Well, when I think about rights, for instance, think about here in America, we have certain rights. We have the right not to have our house uh, searched without a warrant. We have the right to free speech. We have the right not to incriminate ourselves. We have certain rights. Okay? Uh, but when I think about our relationship with God, it seems like it's all privileges. We have the privileges, pr- privilege to love each other and to love others. We have the privilege to know God. We have the privilege to give ourselves to bless others. We have the privilege of being transformed in character to be like Christ. We have the privilege of fulfilling a purpose in God's cause. We have the privilege of sharing the truth about God with others. We have the privilege of seeing other people freed from sin as the Holy Spirit works in their life. We have the privilege of eternal life. We have the privilege of sharing our story of deliverance with sinless beings once we're in heaven. We have the privilege of experiencing God's love in our life. The privilege of the experience of truth itself and the knowledge of the great controversy understood, privilege of returned self-control, self-governance as the fruits of the Spirit work in our life. Um, We have the privilege of a closer intimacy with God than if mankind had never sinned. And, uh, you know, Christ is now part of humanity, part of this creation. And uh, now a couple of ways I try to point that out, how we have a closer union with God now than if man had never sinned. If your father was actually the president of the United States, and hopefully he was a gracious and loving president, he would love all his his, um, citizens of his country, but if he was your father, you would have a closer connection than the rest of the citizens would. Um, God is now human. He's part of our our species. We have a closer connection um, because of that than the beings that are not human. Also, if you've ever been or known people who have been in combat, people who have fought in war together have a close bond and experience than those of us who appreciate our soldiers from what they've done for us, but we haven't been in the trenches and in combat with them. We may love them and appreciate them, but we don't have that close bond that those soldiers that fought together do. We have fought the fight of faith that Christ has fought on our behalf, and we've been on the front lines for and with him. And so we have a, a closer union than those beings who have never been through those experiences also. We have a privilege of doing those things. So as I went through, I thought of lots of privileges. What rights do we have? Yeah. Everything you just said, they are legal enactments. They're legal enactments. Are they, Dean? No. <laughs> no. He's... But a, a right is a legal standing, is it not? Well, that's what I'm trying to throw at the class, because I truly couldn't think of a right. What rights do we have? Yeah. It's probably a privilege, but it's also a right to be called a son of God if you've been adopted. Uh, We're going to get to the whole adoption thing in a moment, (laughs) okay? Because that's in the lesson, and I think they use that because there's certain premises as they come to the scriptures. We'll talk about that, yeah. So potentially, we have a right to be called sons of God rather than privilege or or vice versa, yes? Well, it seems only if you look at the plan of salvation in a legal sense can anything be a right. Yeah, isn't that true? 
Maybe that's what my problem. I, I, I don't look through that legal lens anymore, so I see privileges rather than rights. Do we have a right? Do we have a right to have, have Christ die for us? When man sinned, was it his right to claim Christ to come down out of heaven and, and die in his behalf? No. Okay, yes. So we let go and let Christ be where he should be in the center and focus of our life. Is that part of what we let go is our right? Well, yeah, I, you see, I'm, that's what I'm wondering here, because this, this idea of rights. I, I know one pastor taught that Christ had paid his penalty uh, for, for, for sin. He's claimed that paid penalty, and now he has a right to salvation. And when he presents himself to heaven and God says, hey, um, how, how, in the judgment, and God says, hey, um, what right do you have to be here? It's my right because Jesus died for me. I've heard a pastor present it this way. Do you like that presentation? Yes. I think that Christ gave us the right to come to be to know the Father. You can argue that's a privilege and or a right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was thinking privilege, the privilege to know the Father. But but if you know the Father, then you have the right to eternal life. Oh, okay. You have the right to eternal life because I mean, you know life, the Father? Life is the default of the universe. This earth is the only thing that's out of harmony. We're the only thing functioning out of harmony. Life is... So that's why, that's why I appreciate your help, because I think I was looking at right in a very kind of legal way rather than a consequence of experience way. Yeah. Well, another thing is, when I'm thinking about my rights or somebody else's rights, it tends to be very self-focused. You know, I've got to stand up for my rights. But if it's a privilege... I'm just grateful for it. You're, yeah, that's. A, I thank you for pointing that out because I get that same connotation. When it's my right, then it's something I need to fight for. When it's a privilege, it's something I rejoice and celebrate in receiving. Karen. I hear somebody say that they feel it's their right. For example, like a child who's been adopted or, or something or people who've been enslaved. I, I sense on their part that it's very important for them and I and to, to declare that and to say it with, uh, with certainty and I'd, I'd like to acknowledge that need for them, and maybe it tells me a bit about them. A, a, your child feels like it's their right to have ABC because they're your child. It's a whole lot nicer if you hear it as may I or I'm so grateful or whatever, but um, I, I, the distinction tells more about the person who's claiming it than it does about the thing itself, the privilege of the right itself. It describes the person. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, yeah. Yes. I think the rights we have are found in the promises of God and are conditional upon how we behave towards him. Well, let's keep this in mind as we, as we press through the lesson this week. Because there's, there's... In Revelation, it says we, may, we have right to the tree of life. Ah, okay. Oh, maybe that's one of our rights or privilege. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> yes. Often rights are in the sense of someone who is trying to take something away from you. So, in a sense, the devil is trying to take us away from our Father, then we, we can maybe speak more forcefully to him that it is our right to be associated with the Father. The prodigal son felt his inheritance was a right and demanded it rather than having it be a privilege. So there's some tension here between uh, privilege and right, and let's, let's, let's see how that works out as we go through the class. One, one more comment on this, we'll move on. I can say it all depends on your perspective because as an American you believe you have a right to assemble, you have a right to certain privacies, you have these rights where many people in this world from a different perspective believe those are privileges. Mm. Okay, I like that too. So let's, let's look at the next paragraph. Yeah. Rights have been fought for generally. Privileges are bestowed by some benevolent or unbenevolent. Ent- uh, and privileges can be withdrawn. And privileges can be withdrawn. Rights cannot be withdrawn. Unless it's uh, a dictator, right? <laughs> okay, so the next paragraph says, Watchman Nee says, No matter how much I pray, no matter how hard this person was talking to Watchman Nee, says, No matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to my Lord. I think I'm losing my salvation. Nee said, Do you see this dog here? He's my dog. He's house trained. He never makes a mess. He's obedient. He is a pure delight to, uh, to me. Out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes. He takes. A, he, he, uh, he is a total mess. But who is going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. My son is my heir. You are Christ's heir because it is for you that he died. 
strengths of this of this metaphor? What are the strengths? This analogy. There are strengths in this, aren't there? Number one, it's not based on our performance. We, number two, God doesn't want the obedience of a well-trained dog, which is what many Christians adhere to, ascribe to. They strive to be obedient without thinking. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. God says sit, we sit. God says stand, we stand. God says we don't do it. We don't, no, we don't know why, we just do it, like a well-trained dog. Like God doesn't want that. God invites us in John fifteen fifteen to be friends. And in that process, coming from where we're coming, and where are we coming? What were we born into? Sin. There is no way out of that without making a mess for us. So it's a messy process, no different than somebody with a, a broken bone. There's no way out of that experience without pain. Once there's brokenness, every direction will have pain involved. If you do nothing with it, ignore it, it, it gets worse, you get disability, you get pain. If you go to the surgeon in, in physical therapy, Russell, uh, there's pain involved. <laughs> uh, in the beginning. But, but, and so this process of growing and developing from where we're at can be messy. It says, we too are God's heirs, not because of our own merit, but because of his grace. In Christ we have much more than we even had before Adam's sin. This is one of the points Paul was trying to get to. And I want to talk about this idea of, of heir. It says we are God's heir because of Christ's merit, not because of our merit, because of God's grace. Was mankind in Eden before sin God's heir? Or did mankind only become an heir after sin and Christ's victory at the cross? Heir to what? To God. We have an inheritance. The Bible talks about an inheritance. What do we inherit? I think it's the latter afterwards. So Margaret's suggesting the possibility it's the latter. Um, did mankind have an inheritance in Eden? Yes. They already had it. Yes. Yes, they did have an inheritance. Wasn't it earth given to man to be in dominion over and to govern? It was an inheritance to them given by God. Um, what would cause mankind or an individual to lose their inheritance. Reject it. There's no way you could lose your inheritance. Well, let's think that through. Well, you can either be taken from you or you can give it away. Yeah. If a son has an illness, son, he's, 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 he's been maybe an adopted son, but he's got an illness. Does his illness take away his, his status as an heir? Or is he still an heir? So we are sick with sin. Are we his heirs? How about if the son dies before the father? Is he still an heir? No. Well, if your son dies before you die, what will he inherit from you? No, but he died being your heir. But once he's dead, is he still your heir? No, he's nothing. So what is it that prevents us from being an heir of God? Lies. Ultimately, it's, it's death. If we die, we can't inherit anything. And I'm not talking the sleep death. I'm talking the eternal death. Anyone who dies the eternal death can't inherit anything, can they? You're following me on this. Um, so could we say that mankind is, is an heir of God? We have an inheritance from our Heavenly Father but we are all sick with a terminal condition, and we can only inherit our inheritance if we experience healing through Christ. Did, did I confuse you with that? I'll say it again. Can we say that mankind is an heir of God, but we all suffer from a terminal condition known as sin, and we can only inherit our inheritance if we experience healing through Christ? Does that make sense? Or is it more accurate to say we are not heirs of God until we are uh, experience Christ in our life, and that's when we become heirs of God. Is receiving our inheritance then a legal process or a healing process? It's a huge difference. Huge difference. We'll come back to this topic. Just plant some seeds for you to meditate on as we go through the lesson today. Because I'm suggesting to you that the metaphor 
And well, you should be asking the question, well, if it's a healing process rather than a legal process, why did Paul use the metaphor of adoption with the Galatians? And we'll have an answer for that as we go later into the class. Yes? The inhabitants of other worlds that haven't fallen, would they be considered heirs also? Well, we aren't given a lot about the culture of other worlds. We don't know if other worlds, uh, the beings on those worlds, have been given dominion over their planets or not. Uh, if they have been, I would say that would be an inheritance to them. But we do know from the account here that Adam and Eve were given both the ability to procreate and the ability to have dominion and governance over this world. It was theirs as an inheritance. What is the inheritance we get from God now? We get eternal life. What did Adam and Eve would have had if they had never sinned? Eternal life. We get, as she said, access to the tree of life. What did Adam and Eve have in the Garden of Eden? Access to the tree of life. We get a new heaven and a new earth. What did they have? A perfect earth without sin. I mean, whatever the inheritances we claim that we're going to get, they had as a gift from God. Yeah. And the only reason we won't get that inheritance is if we die before our Father. And since He never dies, okay, that means unless we're not healed, we have to be healed, restored, then we will inherit the kingdom. It will be given to us. Sunday's lesson, Galatians, to ask us to read Galatians 3, 26 through 29. It says, You are sons of God through faith in Christ. For all of you were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. The promise of what? No, it wasn't a promise of Abraham. We weren't promised Abraham. Yeah, the promise to Abraham. What, what was Abraham promised? A nation? A nation? Possession of Canaan. Possession of Canaan? These were some of the promises. Is that the promise that we get? We get to go to Palestine? Should we all buy some property over there? No. <laughs> or was the promise the promise of the seed? Not seeds, Paul says, but the seed. The promise of the Son, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the Savior through Abraham's descendants. This was the real ultimate promise. That through Abraham, there would be a great nation. But would that great nation be an earthly, human, sinful nation that he was speaking of? Would it be a great nation of the saved? All nations will be blessed. Okay? It, was a, it was a promise of a Savior to bring healing to the world. This was the promise. So those who don't accept Christ and what he has accomplished are not heirs. Not because um, they, they couldn't be, but because they're going to die and they can't inherit anything once you're dead. Third paragraph, it says, Paul's use of the word for in verse 27 indicates once again the close logical development of his reasoning. Paul sees baptism as a radical decision to unite our lives with Christ. In Romans 6, he describes baptism symbolically as, unite, as our uniting with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. In Galatians, Paul employs a different metaphor. Baptism is the act of being clothed with Christ. Paul's terminology is reminiscent of the wonderful passage in the Old Testament that talks about being clothed with the righteousness of salvation. Paul's view, Paul views baptism as the moment when Christ, like a garment, envelops the believer. Although he does not employ the term, Paul is describing the righteousness which is conferred upon believers. Yes? When we are baptized in Christ, do we receive the Holy Spirit at that time? Uh, question. We baptized in Christ, do we receive the Holy Spirit in that time? What do you understand baptized into Christ to mean? What does baptism mean? I understand there's basically two, two forms of baptism. And I'm not talking sprinkling and immersion. There's a water baptism, and then there's the baptism of the Spirit. Now, you, can you go through a water baptism and never even have knowledge of God in your life? Sure you can. The water baptism, I'm going to tell you, is not relevant. The, the relevant baptism, and, and the word baptism in the Greek means the baptismo. It means immersion. Okay? And what baptism is really say, saying in Scripture is that our minds, our hearts, our characters are immersed into Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have a new heart and a right spirit. The law is written on the heart and mind. We have transformation of the inner man, immersion of the old into Christ so that a new person lives within. That's what real baptism is. And then those who've experienced that 
genuinely transformation of heart first are the ones who uh, stand up and then say publicly, I want to show that I have died to the old way and I'm resurrected to the new. So I would suggest, but people can, for political reasons and lots of other reasons, go through the water baptism without ever immersing their hearts and minds into Christ, can't they? Yeah. Okay, so what do you think of this idea of conferred? You notice it said that here, that Paul is describing the righteousness which is conferred upon the believers. Well, I, I looked up the word conferred in the dictionary, and this is what it means. To grant or bestow a title, a degree, benefit, or right. Moves were made to confer an honorary degree on her. To confer. Is this the biblical definition, biblical definition of what it means to be clothed in Christ's righteousness? To have him confer upon us righteousness. So this is what the Bible says. Let me read you a couple of Bible passages. Romans 8, 1 through 3. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, Christ did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Not the righteous requirements of the law may be conferred upon us, declared, accounted to us, but fulfilled in us. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No, in him we might be declared the righteousness of God. No, in him we might have the righteousness of God conferred to our account in heaven. No. It is, we are to become, we are to be transformed, we are to be renewed, we are to be reborn, we are to be recreated, we are to be regenerated, we are to be um, like Christ in heart and mind. That's what this is talking about. So here's how one of the founders of our church described what it means to be clothed in Christ. And I won't read the whole passage to you, um, but it's out of Christ's Object Lessons 3.11. It says, when we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart, the will is merged in his will, the mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the garments of his righteousness. How many here would claim that? How many here would claim that? So that I can say, if I see you, I see the Father. Should be. Should be. That's right. Exactly. Is there a process? I would suggest this. This is what people do. Get confused upon. The difference between the heart and what the heart desires to do and habit patterns that we've developed before we come to know Christ. Those are two different things. Because the man who's converted and has a heart to live like Christ, reveal Christ, demonstrate Christ, fulfills this. But while his heart is striving for that, there are old neural circuits that have been inculcated and have been strengthened, has been habit patterns, uh, conditioned responses we have. And we may reflexively do certain things that are not like Christ, but it's not coming from the heart. It's coming from old habit patterns. The heart is sick over that. And so you go, oh man, what a wretched man am I. Who will save me from this body of death? I don't want to be this way. And we're sickened in heart. So yes, we can say our hearts are like this, but yet, what, yet we still live in a weakened and defective humanity. Well, yes. The beauty of that is that then the heart is in conflict with those old habit patterns, and through the Holy Spirit, there's a continual reminder of going to Christ and asking for help with those. Habit That's exactly patterns. right. The heart is in conflict. We are sickened when we see the selfishness and the selfish temptations and 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 responses that we sometimes give reflexively, and we don't want to be that way. Yes. I think that's the really important concept, though, that we understand that there is true grief, not accommodation for the old self. An accommodation, excuse-making, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me, I really was righteous the whole time. The devil made me do it. I really wanted (laughs) to do this, but, you know, I'm weak. But that there is true grief there. So can we, as Peter says become partakers of the divine nature? Or is it all a grand illusion? No, we must. No, we do. It's real, guys. We really do. We get a, a partaking of God's motives, hearts, character. We have, I mean, certainly we've all experienced this experience where something changed in us and, and we didn't like being that way anymore. Yeah. All right, bottom section, it says, dwell on this thought that what is true in Christ is also true in us. And I just thought, okay, very quick, let's do this quickly, because we've got some really important things to go through in the lesson, but 
what is true about Christ and us? What's true for both? What's true about Christ is also true in us. Just quickly. Human. He's human. We're human. Temp, both tempted by sin. Both suffer or suffered because he's already over his suffering. Okay, but suffer. Um, born uh, into the earth and we all had a sinful mother. Okay, he didn't have a sinful father, but, but we all have a sinful mother. Um, both Christ and the saved have unity with Christ in heart. And Christ and the saved reign uh, on thrones in heaven in the hereafter. Isn't that what the scripture says? So we have these common out, but are there things that are not true about Christ and us? Yeah, how about he never sinned and we did, and we do. He is fully God and fully man. We're only human. He was preexistent. We have a beginning. Uh, God, Christ loves always. We struggle with that sometimes, don't we? Yeah. All right, Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph. We're going to skip Monday and come back to it if we have time. Yeah, I think it's really important that when we say Jesus was human and divine, that he invites us to be partakers of the divine nature. Yes, we may be partakers of the divine nature in character, but we won't be partakers of divine omnipotence or divine omniscience. But we need to or divine... that that's a very high calling to be partakers of the divine nature. Yes, uh, and was Adam to be a partaker of the divine nature before he sinned? Yes. Yes, he was developed that perfect godly character. Yes. So it's true. Yeah, we can take the the nature, in other words, the character, principles, methods, motives uh, of Christ, and that should be uh, who we become. But we don't get the uh, abilities, abilities of of the divine. Yes. Partake. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Tuesday's lesson. It says. Paul's choice of the word fullness indicates God's active role in working out his purpose in human history. Jesus did not come at just any time. He came at the precise time God had prepared for his, for historical perspective. That time is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, a 200-year period of relative stability and peace across the Roman Empire. Rome's conquest of the Mediterranean world brought peace and a common language, favorable means of travel, and a common culture that facilitated the rapid spread of the gospel. From a biblical perspective, it is also marked as a time that God had set forth in the promise in, of, of Daniel's prophecies. Now, when I read this, this may be one of the reasons why God chose this time. These, these things they cite here are true. I'm not going to dispute that. But I was wondering, are there, you know, as they said, these are historical reasons. I was wondering if there are biblical reasons why he chose this time. What might some of those biblical reasons be? First, Margaret... <laughs> The, the, while the scriptures are to teach us about God, who is the, 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 the people through whom God chose tells the story? Is it through the Aborigine or the Anglo-Saxons or the Native Americans? Does he tell his story through those, those cultures? No, through the Israel. Or is the Bible's story and God's revelation of himself through the, the children of Abraham, primarily? Is that not right? So should we look and ask the question, was there something particular about the children of Abraham that was going on at this time in human history that was why he came at this time. They claimed to be the true followers of God, looking for the Messiah. And God had, he, he showed that a people could be so observant of the rules and yet so misunderstand the prophecies that when he came, they rejected him. So I think Margaret's going down the exact right trail here. Are human beings the only intelligent beings in the universe involved in this conflict with Satan? No. And the angels watching in heaven from a heavenly perspective, watching the children of Abraham from the time of Abraham's choosing and, and covenant with God until the time Christ came. Uh, if you were in heaven, if you were an angel looking into earth, watching these people, what was different about the time when Christ came than previous in their history? They were following all the rules. They were following. If you're an external observer... Wow, before they're worshiping Baal, they're worshiping Molech, they're worshiping Beelzebub, they're into all these cults and all this, all this constantly, constantly, constantly. But when Christ came, were they worshiping all that stuff anymore? No, no here we have it, people. Finally, we're outside observer watching. Okay, they're finally following the script. They're doing the blueprint. They're keeping the manual. Okay, now we have a people that when Christ comes to them, they will love him. You see, if they're worshiping Baal and Christ comes, well, we can't, he can't go, it's not safe. You can't go now. They're worshiping Baal. You can't go. They'll kill you. Okay? Wait. You're worshiping the true God. 
following the feast days, paying a double tie, straining the gnats out of your food, going on every Sabbath from sunset to sunset. You are keeping the, the rule book like you're supposed to. It's safe. Christ can go now and save them, right? That's what it looked like from the outside, didn't it? Because can angels read hearts and minds? No. No, they can't read the secrets of the heart. And so Christ comes and what happens? What do we learn from this? We learn that, as Margaret was saying, when you keep the rules but don't know the truth about God's character, then you're his enemy and you hate him and you kill him. They were the children of the devil. They were the children of the devil. Jesus said himself, yes. It sounds like you're suggesting that the people that were keeping the rules were descendants of Abraham or descendants of Jacob. They were long gone. They'd been taken away by the Assyrians. And who moved into those areas? Edomites, Canaanites, everybody other than the descendants of Abraham. And so they were keeping the rules, but every single person in that area of the world were converts to Judaism, I would, I would, uh, I would not, not, not. Uh, not every single soul. Not, I mean, I would not adhere to that because the, for instance, the priests had to be the sons of Levi, and the Edomites could not be the priests in the temple. They had to be sons of Levi. Uh, but all that stuff was a sham. I'm not. I'm not so sure it is. Um, Matthew, Matthew chapter one, I believe, and I believe also in Luke, we have a chronology of Christ's parentage. And that chronology of Christ's parentage goes right back through the descendants of Abraham. How was he able to do that if there were no descendants of Abraham around? Then why did he tell the disciples to go find the lost sheep of Israel? Because they weren't there. Well, it's not because they weren't there. If you remember after the Babylonian captivity, when they were set free, a remnant returned and rebuilt the, the temple. But a vast majority didn't return. And the lost sheep were those who didn't return. But those who did return were descendants of Abraham and Israel was rebuilt. Other, other comment? Yes. Wasn't well, Christ also referring you know, down in time to the Gentiles and, and the global Israel? I think so too. I think he was. Yes. Joseph, Jesus' time, kept the Torah, of course, but they also kept the Talmud, which is a hundreds of rules and regulations based on human traditions. And Jesus said very clearly, in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines of men. We have to be very careful in our church. Ah that we not only keep the New Testament, the faith of Jesus, but do we have any human traditions? Did you hear everybody hear him? He said that they were also doing the Talmud, which are human traditions. And Jesus said, in vain do you worship me, uh, keeping the doctrines of men rather than the commandments of God. And he says, do we today have to watch and keep guard that we don't substitute human tradition for God's, God's you know, directives? All right, fifth paragraph. It says, the phrase born under the law points not only to Jesus' Jewish heritage, but also includes the fact that he, was bo- he bore our condemnation. Thoughts? This is where we're going to get into the fun stuff, I hope, today. It says, what do you understand the law here to mean first? The law. See, it depends on how you understand law. If you understand law like Imperial Rome, the Imperial Rome infection to Christianity. What's Imperial Rome's infection to Christianity? How does Imperial Rome impose law or create law? They impose it. They impose it upon their citizenship. The citizenship must observe that law. If you don't observe the law, then there are consequences imposed by the Imperial authority. This is how Imperial Rome has caused Christianity to see God in his government. God is the grand imperial ruler of the universe. He imposes law upon his creatures, and as the great imposer of law, if you break the law, you impose penalties. Rather than seeing the law as the law of love, which emanates from the character of God, and when he constructed his universe, he built it. He actually built his universe to run on laws that cannot be changed. Laws of respiration, laws of gravity, these types of laws, and spiritual laws that cannot be changed. And so... When you understand God's law as natural law rather than imposed law, then it means something different. If you see it as an imposed law, then you believe Christ was born under legal condemnation. He was condemned by the legal system. And therefore, we need a legal solution. If you see it as a natural law, then you understand that Christ was born under the law of sin and death. That Paul talks about, we read in Romans 8, that the law of the Spirit saved me from the law of sin and death. In other words, he was born with a humanity like ours, subject to like passions as ours, which was able to tempt him in every way like we are, yet without sin. 
And we see in Gethsemane that Christ was tempted by his human nature, by powerful human emotions to avoid the cross, to save himself. But every time temptation came, he chose to love. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. And he chose to overcome where we could not. So, And then in the last paragraph, following through on this thought, it says, it was necessary for Christ to assume our humanity because we could not save ourselves. By uniting his, divinity, his divine nature with our fallen nature, Christ legally qualified to be our substitute, Savior and High Priest. As the second Adam, he came to reclaim all that the first Adam had lost by his disobedience. By his obedience, he perfectly fulfilled the law's demands, thus redeeming Adam's tragic failure. And by his death on the cross, he met the justice of the law, which required the death of the sinner, thus gaining the right to redeem all who come to him in true faith and surrender. Now, I'm going to tell you this passage is filled with truths and lies. It is true he's our substitute. It is true that he, as a second Adam, reclaimed all that the first Adam lost. Those things are true. Uh, But... When you accept the uh, imposed law idea, then you believe that his achievements to accomplish those ends were through legal means rather than through healing means. So it says right here, for instance, this passage, he met the the justice of the law which required the death of the sinner. Does the law require the death of the sinner? No. What does the law require? If the law is like Rome, if the law is like Rome, an imposed law, you see, then when you break that law, that law requires a payment. That law requires a punishment. And in this case, that law requires death. So when you've accepted the little horn's view of the law, then you teach that the law requires death. But when the law is the principles of God's kingdom that he built life to run upon, that law requires harmony with it. That's what it requires. So, How did one of the founders of our church describe this? Let me read some things to you and see if this blows your mind. Because we're answering this question, what does the law require? That's the question. What does the law require? Desire of Ages 762, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. Um, Second selected message is 211. But the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy, that the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness. Or A New Life, page 32. The, law, the divine law requires us to love God supremely and our neighbors as ourselves. Or Second, select, second Selected Messages, 380. That which God required of Adam before his fall was perfect obedience to his law. God requires now that what he required of Adam, perfect obedience, righteousness without a flaw, without shortcoming in his sight, God help us render to him all that his law requires. We cannot do this without the faith that brings Christ's righteousness into the daily practice. Now, first, uh, I'm going to give you some more, but are you getting a flavor of what the law requires? Are you picking up anything along the lines that the law requires death or a death penalty? Now, did you notice this phrase? God help us render to him all his law requires. If the law requires death of the sinner, should we be praying God help us render to him all the law requires? If it requires our death. You see, this is what our lesson is teaching us. It requires death. She's telling us we should be praying God help us render to him, help us render to him what the law requires. Well, no, we we don't want to render death, do we? No, the law doesn't require death. Here's another one. Bible Echo, February 15, 1889. His law requires your heart's supreme affection for your maker. It requires you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Review and Herald, March 11, 1884. This is the voice of God to you, my brethren and sisters, who profess to keep the law of God. That law requires that you love your neighbor as yourself. Are you doing this? Or, the Lord will give ample light. This is out of um, Review and Herald, February 15, 1898. The Lord will give ample light to all who will be true and loyal to him, but he will show no more favor to Phariseeism and self-righteousness today than when he walked with humanity uh, on our world. The soul that encourages an atmosphere of doubt, God cannot favor with constantly increasing grace. His mercy and the gracious influences of his spirit remain the same for all who will receive them. His offer of salvation does not change. Notice this. It is man 
who changes his relationship to God. Many place themselves where they cannot recognize his grace and salvation. Now get this. They are under a delusion as to what constitutes Christianity. And while man refuses to become pure, holy, and undefiled as God's law requires of him, he is walking away from Christ. What does God's law require? That we become pure, holy, and undefiled. So imagine an HIV man and an HIV woman get together and have a child born HIV infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. nothing. That's, that's you and me. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We've done nothing wrong to have this condition. We didn't choose it. But even though the baby, innocent, didn't do anything wrong, does the baby have a condition which, if unremedied, is terminal? That's you and me too. We have a condition, unremedied, terminal. Now, if that baby grows up your age and there's a free remedy offered that will cure that child and that child refuses the remedy, will they be responsible for that? That's our situation as well. So what happens then? This HIV-infected baby didn't do anything wrong. He's got a condition. Growing up, has a remedy offered, but someone comes along beforehand and offers them a false remedy. And they sincerely take the false remedy. What happens? They will die. Do you understand the whole legal payment theology system is a false remedy? I claim the payment of Jesus on my behalf. My sins have been paid for. Therefore, I have a right to heaven. But my heart hasn't changed. I haven't partaken of Christ. I don't have the divine nature. I don't have the law written on my heart and mind. I just have my legal penalty paid. They have a del- the words of Elamite, they, ha- they are under a delusion as to what constitutes Christianity. It's a delusion. Christianity is transforming, regenerating. It's Christ living within. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is what Christianity is. Here's some more. Signs of the Times, November 23, 1891. His law requires us to love God supremely and our neighbors as ourselves. Signs of the time, May 30, 1895. The law requires us to present to God a holy character. It demands of men today what it demanded of Adam in Eden, perfect obedience, perfect harmony with its precepts in all relations to life under all circumstances and all conditions. Wow, that's pretty high standard, isn't it? Why would it require that? God's law requires that you breathe under all circumstances and all conditions. Why does it require you to breathe under all circumstances and all conditions? Because that's the law upon which life is built. This is the same thing. God built his universe to operate in harmony with his character of love. And only as we are in harmony with it do we live. That's it. Yes. This is why it says at the end of time, people will turn on their ministers who have taught them The the lie. Yes, I think so. Because now they see that the lie led them to the place of destruction rather than the place of life where they thought they were going. I agree with you. Here's another one. Get this one. This is another little question I'm going to ask after this one. It says, God's law requires that justice and right be exercised between man and his fellow man. It requires that we shall not injure our neighbor in his property, his feelings, his health, or his good name. It requires compassion for the afflicted, even if he be our enemy, that in all our associations and our fellow, with our fellow beings, we shall show the same love and care that we would wish to have exercised toward ourselves. That's what his law requires. Um, now let me ask you this. If this is what God's law requires of how we treat our enemies, would it be true that this is how God treats his enemies? Then how dare we teach that God will use his power to torture the wicked in the end? This is what we teach. They have a delusion as to what constitutes Christianity. Because they don't understand God's law as the law of love upon which he built his universe. They instead have accepted imperial little horn Rome's imposition of an imposed law idea. And therefore justice requires that he punish and kill. It's not what Christianity is. And our church, our church sadly, and my heart breaks over this, but our church is infected with this idea. And it's infected not, not with some new infection. Where did Protestantism originate? From Rome. And it's just, just it's never been quite eliminated. We have been growing. And, and, and as a people, we are to finish the Reformation to prepare a people for Christ's return. We have to eliminate this idea and see God's true character and nature. Um, and then here's this one. Signs of the Times, February 24, 1898. Christ came to, to this world to live the law and represent the character of God. Notice, to live the law and represent the character of God, that the delusions which Satan had brought upon the world might be dispelled. In the Sermon on the Mount, 
He who gave the law became an expositor of the law. That sermon, so full of what it means to love and obey God, is is the unfolding of his character. The law is shown to be a representation of God's character, that man may see that he might render obedience to the law if he would become a member of the royal family, a child of the heavenly king. This law requires nothing short of perfect spiritual obedience. Now, remember we're asking the question, what does the law require? How many quotations have I given you? And I can tell you, I went through the E.G. White CD. I typed in the words, law requires death. Not one document does she have anywhere where she says the law requires death. Notice all these things that the law requires. But sometimes people get confused because they see the, the, the scriptures, they see inspired writings through a lens of the imposed law idea. So what do you think about this? Well, the law... Oh, first, the first question is, before we get to that one, is how can we experience this? This is the question I think you were uh, alluding to a little bit ago. How can we experience what the law requires in our life? Wouldn't that be something you'd like to know? Okay, this is out of uh, Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, page 54. While the law is holy, the Jews could not attain righteousness by their own effort to keep the law. Not just the Jews. How about the Americans? Americans can't, can't attain it either by their own efforts to, to keep the law. The disciples of Christ must obtain righteousness of a different character from that of the Pharisees if they would enter the kingdom of heaven. God offered them in his son the perfect righteousness of the law. If they would open their hearts fully to receive Christ, then the very life of God, his love, would dwell in them, transforming them into his own likeness. And thus, through God's free gift, they would possess the righteousness which the law requires. Get your minds around that. Do you see how different that is then? We get a statement stamped by our books in heaven that claims that we're righteous. This is actually something we possess in our hearts and minds when we possess Christ. It's awesome. Isn't it awesome, guys? It's the greatest miracle. It is the greatest miracle. It really is. And it's only when we come to know him and trust him and open the heart and say, Lord, come in with your spirit. Take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in me. Give me a new heart and my spirit, Lord. Create your, 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 your own spirit within me. And I'd like it now. Yes, absolutely. So, so where is the law? Yeah, it's, it's, it's reproducing the heart. So many Christians get confused because they have this distortion of what God's law requires. So here's another statement. And, and how might you hear this statement? This is Review and Herald, April 29, 1902. I want you to notice that 1902, so it's late in the career. Christ saw the helpless condition of the race, and he came to redeem them by living the life of obedience the law requires and by paying in his death the penalty of disobedience. He came to bring us the message and means of deliverance and assurance of salvation, not through the abrogation of the law, but through obedience made possible by his merits. I bring you this one on purpose because people allege that I, I'm a cherry picker of the, of, the, of the passages, that I only pick those that I like and I won't pick those that I don't like. This is, this is completely in harmony with everything we're teaching. How? How do we understand it? How? What? Did she say the law requires death in this one? Did not say that. She said that the law required the life living, um, by, by living the life of obedience the law requires and by paying in his death the penalty of disobedience. It doesn't say the law requires a death penalty. So how do we put those two things together? The law requires a life of obedience. Why? Why does it require that? Why does the law require we breathe? Why? Because life is built to operate on respiration. That's how it's constructed. You can't get around that law. You can't negotiate with it. It, you, if you want to live, you've got to breathe. Okay, that's, that's a law. Now, if you decide to break that law, tie a plastic bag over your head, and you pass out because you're trying to commit suicide, but you're unconscious and somebody walks in before your dad and pulls the plastic bag off over your head, the law is now no longer being broken. You're breathing again. But you have broken the law by tying the plastic bag over your head. Does that mean we now have to execute you? You've broken the law, we've got to kill you now. 
No, we don't have to impose anything upon you. We have to be put back in harmony with the law. As soon as the plastic bag was taken off, you're back in harmony with the law. And then you live. This is what's going on. So, what does the law require? It requires, I'm going to get to you, it requires perfect obedience. The law requires that the human being have God's law perfectly restored within to be renewed and recovered. Now, in order for that to happen, Christ had to destroy. Some might use the words carnal nature. I like to use the words the infection of self-centeredness. The survival of the fittest instinct that we're born with. And Christ took upon himself our condition so that in his humanity he might restore perfectly God's law of love while simultaneously extinguishing the the desire, the drive that we have to act in self-interest that we're born with. And we're all born with it. If you if, Just imagine somebody holding your head underwater and they're trying to drown you and you have a knife in your hand. The longer you're being held, how strong does the urge get to attack them to save yourself? But those in Revelation 12 described ready to meet Christ when he comes, verse 11, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Paul, remember, Moses at age 40 murders an overseer. At age 80, write my name out of the book if you're going to destroy these people. He's willing to give his life now. He's not trying to protect himself. Paul, prior to his Damascus Road experience, walking around stoning people, putting people in prison, using this survival power over method. After Damascus Road, he writes, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. He's not worried about protecting self anymore. Something's changed. This is what Christ achieved, in the, and you see it in Gethsemane and, and through his life, but in Gethsemane particularly, he was overwhelmed with such anguish. And what was his anguish tempting him to do? He prayed it three times. Father, if be possible, what cup passed around me? What cup? The crucifixion. He was asking to, to have his life spared. His, in other words, his emo, human emotions were tempting him to not go through the cross, to save self. But every time the temptation came, he says, no, not, not my will be done, thy will be done. No one can take my life, I will give it freely. And he overcame that inherent desire. And so at the cross, what Christ destroyed is he destroyed that wiring, if you will, that, that nature, that, that, that pre-programmed stuff that we are we're always plagued with to be so selfish and watch out for stuff. He killed it at the cross. When he rose again, he rose with a new humanity, cleansed and purged with the law of love, perfectly restored into the human being by his achievements for us. That's what he offers us, that life. Life freed from that nature. We couldn't have done it. Yes? We breathe quite naturally because of the medulla oblongata, at the top of the stem of the vertebrae. And uh, Christ, I think Alan White mentioned, prayer should be the breath of the soul. Prayer should be the breath of the soul. If we really have God's spirit in us, we should be breathing through prayer. Uh, Constant communion, daily walk. Right. Yeah, open the but heart. I just yeah. say, medically speaking, it's not just automatically that we breathe. It's the medulla oblongata that makes us breathe. Without it, we would not be able to breathe. Yes, and, and, and that is called our autonomic nervous system, that we don't have to think about it. It does it automatically for us. We're right. pre-programmed to do that. Um, and since you brought up the breathing uh, again in the context to... to um, the law of love. The law of love is the law of giving or beneficence. You see, when God has his way in our lives and heals us the way he wants, it will be as easy for us to love others as it will be to breathe. When was the last time you got up in the morning and said, you know what, I've got to breathe today? <laughs> wow, 12 breaths a minute, uh, 24, uh, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours, and that's a lot of breathing I've got to do today. When was the last time you got up and said that? See, breathing is easy unless you're really, really sick. And if you're really, really sick, then we need a ventilator to help us breathe, or we need a supplementary oxygen to help us breathe because we're so sick we can't breathe normally on our own and survive. Our hearts are so sick with selfishness that we need supplemental help from God to love. We're not healed yet. But as God heals us, we will be set free to be self-governed, last fruit of the Spirit, self-control, and we will love freely because we have been cured, cleansed, and healed. And it will be easy to love others as it is to breathe. Wednesday's lesson. First paragraph. Yes. Doesn't the law support our rights from our judicial system? I'm not sure which law you're talking about. 
You mean the Constitution of the United States? Yes. That's supposed to protect our rights. Yes. Right? Yes. So wouldn't it from a spiritual sense also be okay to say that by keeping the law, we therefore have the rights to the society that that law creates? You could say by keeping the law, you have the right to the consequences that come from that law. So by keeping the law of health, you have right to a healthier life. By breaking the law, you, you will get a, an unhealthier life. You could say it that way. I wouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, uh, the privileges of adoption. First, uh, first paragraph says, in, uh, in Galatians 4, 5 through 7, Paul expands on the theme stressing that Christ, uh, that Christ has now redeemed those who are under the law. The verb to redeem means to buy back. Uh, it refers to the price paid to buy the freedom of either the hostage or the slave. And this is a straightforward thing, guys. Uh, 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 a, a ransom or a price to buy back a hostage or slave is the price required to free someone from bondage. Now, the question is very simple. What holds us in bondage? Our sinful natures hold us in bondage, and the lies about God that we believe hold us in bondage. So the price that was necessary to be paid was the price of the truth to destroy the lies and a new nature which he developed in our behalf. Those are what was needed to free us from our circumstance. It was never a legal price. Everybody with me on this? Okay. Yes, the only way we're entitled to our inheritance is if we live. If we die, we don't get it. For our laws uh, on adoption, if I adopt a child, I can never disown that child. I can yeah. disown a child that was born to me naturally, but under the law, that child who was adopted will always share in my in my wealth. Yes, unless it dies before you do. Correct. Okay, and that's the point. If, even if you adopt a child and that child dies before you do it, inherits nothing. Correct. Okay, so we can only inherit our inheritance from God if we have eternal life, if we don't die. So the inheritance so is the not... the death that you've been talking about all morning is the second death. Yes, absolutely. It doesn't require a second death. That, that's exactly right. If we die the second death, we inherit nothing. So the, the inheritance that we receive is because we've been healed and restored. If without, without that healing and restorance, we get nothing. We may be an heir, but we don't inherit anything because we die. So we really have to earn it. No, we don't heal ourselves. HIV-infected baby that we gave the analogy earlier has a free remedy offered. They either accept the remedy or they don't, but accepting the remedy, they don't heal themselves. But refusing the remedy, they die. We're in a terminal state. We either accept healing or we reject healing. But accepting healing, we don't heal ourselves. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. It's a free gift. But we have to accept it. We have to partake of it. Yeah. So the, the, the third paragraph says, um, we often speak about Christ's accomplishments for us. And really, it's, it's talking about the adoption thing here. Um, and it uses a metaphor. It's metaphor. Paul uses the metaphor in the Greco-Roman world about adoption. And the lesson gives a lots of rights that the adopted child had. The adopted child, as you were going through, the legal rights, all these things the child gets once they're adopted. Um, those who see the law as an imposed law, as an imperial law, like Rome sees it, will they take this metaphor. And this adoption uh, description here is a metaphor. It's a parable, if you will. It's, it's an analogy. It's not literal. God didn't go into a heavenly family court and file papers to adopt us. Didn't happen. It's a metaphor. So the question is, why the metaphor? And what I'm going to tell you is this. Here's my reason, uh, so far in my, my studies. And that is, Paul was writing to the Galatians. And the Galatians were being attacked and infected by Judaizers. And the Judaizers were coming in and telling the non-Jew converts, you don't have the same rights and privileges of the Jews to all the promises of God unless you convert to Judaism and get circumcised and keep all the Jewish feasts. If you don't do those things, then you are a substandard, not member of the, of the family. You may be a, a guardian of the parent, but you're not a, an heir of the parent. And so Paul, to, a, to destroy the Judaizers' mythos, uses the adoption metaphor to these people to help them understand you don't have to be a biological member of, Jew, of the Jewish nation to have all the privileges and promises that come through Christ. Because once you partake of Christ, you're an adopted son with all the same privileges. And so this is not to teach us that the real plan of salvation is about adoption, it's to destroy the mythos of Judaism and the Judaizers that tell you you have to be a Jew in order to get those privileges. That's my understanding of what Paul's doing here. And fortunately, when you go and read back into it through the lens of Martin Luther, 
and through the lens of Calvin and through the lens of Imperial Rome and you already have a preconceived idea about an imposed law and imposed legal justice system, then you see all this and you take it very concretely and you then begin to believe that there's this legal adoption that goes on. It's not. It's a healing process. He heals and restores us, restores his law within our hearts and minds, the new covenant. I'll write my law in your hearts and minds. And then because we live eternally through the grace and gift of God, we inherit the gifts he wants to give us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what Christ has achieved on our behalf. We could have never done it. We were born, in fact, at sick, terminal. But you didn't look down on us and abandon us. You sent Christ to achieve the victory, to heal, to transform, to recreate humanity back to the way you intended it in Adam originally. You did that in, in yourself, in Jesus Christ. And now, because of Jesus, we can become partakers of your nature. And we ask that your spirit will be poured out to take all that you have accomplished and achieved for us and reproduce it in us, that our thoughts can be brought into harmony with your thoughts, our desires in harmony with yours, our motives to be like yours, that we can live your life shining a true, true light into this world. Help us to be effective in a loving and compassionate way to disabuse so many of our friends and, and family and, and colleagues that are, that are into the delusion of Christianity, the, the system that brings no healing that we can reach out in, a, in, a, in gracious ways to try and, and, and be a resource that you can work through to lighten this world, that you can come, come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.